Welcome, everybody, to Democracy Nerd. I am Jefferson Smith. We've talked before on the podcast the idea of sortition or lottery-based democracy. In short, a panel of citizens randomly selected to decide some government policy. This might seem like a hard idea to grasp for those of us more familiar with first-past-the-post elections or party-based electoral politics, but this crazy idea actually has its roots in the origins of democracy itself, and it's being taken more and more seriously by students of good government, with citizen assemblies growing up throughout the world. Respect being given by political thinkers is growing in some respects new. Our guest today is Hugh Pope, the son of Maurice Pope, author of a new book about sortition called The Keys to Democracy, coming out this March. And we will talk about why we are talking to Hugh rather than Maurice as part of the discussion. Maurice wrote his book decades ago, couldn't get it published. Too crazy an idea until now. And now Hugh, his son, joins us. Hugh, thank you so much for joining us from Turkey, as I understand it. That's right. I'm I, I'm here and I'm really glad to join you on the show. I, I love Democracy Nerd, Jefferson. Thank you. Well, we appreciate it. And how did you end up in Turkey, just by way of introduction? I was uh, an Arabist and Persianist. I spent uh, several years in the Middle East. And then I somehow saw that the entirely oppressive regimes there would probably never lighten up in my lifetime. So I came a little closer to Europe in Turkey and ended up living 30 years here. Um, and I've uh, actually moved back to Europe seven years ago. So uh, I just have a house here, which I sometimes come to and uh, uh, refresh my very, uh, I, I love Turkey, but um, I, I'm uh, uh, more happy based in, in Brussels these days. And what comes to mind, because my awareness of global news is too often limited to headlines, uh, what comes to my mind right now is earthquake. Yes, uh, it's devastating. I mean, people, I'm always six, where I am is 600 kilometers away from it, but people here are absolutely devastated. I mean, you, because everyone gets into their own uh, algorithmic uh, target zone, as it were, and the, everyone believes something radically different and believes it to be factual. And there's so much misinformation that everyone is confused, angry, upset. And at the same time, there's this amazing mobilization of all the people, all my neighbors. And uh, I was just fixing my car yesterday. The garage owner had driven east 600 kilometers, 400 miles. And in order to bring aid to people, and he stayed there a week with a, a group of four by four owners from from the local town. I, I I just find it amazing the stories he came back with about how everyone had 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 come to help, how people had mobilized, um, uh, graders, uh, backhoes to, to to lift the rubble. He said, uh, you know, it, it, the, the popular mobilization is extraordinary. Uh, and you know, obviously, it all comes back to politics and uh, even the way uh, things function in a country like Turkey, where somehow a crisis brings out the best of everyone. It's just normality that people can't deal with. And um, you could could talk about it for hours, but you probably Turkish politics. No, I am. I not am, where I am you fascinated. <laughs> I've got a follow up though. You said there's lots of disinformation. Uh, what are people getting wrong, or what's the most important thing people need to know? I think the most people need to know is that the algorithm 
is playing you. I mean, I think my my friends here are not aware that they are seeing something that's been tailor-made for them, and therefore everything that feeds their particular political preference is persuading them either that the government is doing a fantastic job and couldn't be better, or it's absolutely standing in the way of aid and blocking uh, the efforts of uh, right-minded citizens to do what they think is right. And so you get people having, you, you can see polarization is just exacerbated by what people are hearing and reading on their phones. Well, it may have seemed oblique, but maybe it's not so odd or or at least out of place an introduction to what we're going to talk about. If we're talking about how can people get along, how can people make decisions together, how can people trust their government, how can they have at least some belief that their government is representing the people rather than a coin flip of a chance that their uh, government is supporting something that they are diametrically opposed to too often. I want to get a little bit into the story behind the publication of the book, He's Democracy. And but again, my little bit of background. So I'm in the tank for sortition, right? Like I, I now think as I as I do the and not because I lack political views, right? In fact, very much because I have them, uh, not because they are a reflection of them, except to the degree that you know we love democracy. But if what we want is a problem-solving government, then we've got to have a government that uh, has some semblance of trust. If we want democracy, then the people have to be to some degree in charge. And I have now seen uh, as an elected official, as a commentator, as as somebody who's you know written some stuff uh, that I uh, that from each angle as a as an activist, as a nonprofit leader, and heck, as a as a business person, uh, from each angle, how much we need to have a process that people can believe in. So we looking at a sortition, and and I love it. I love it. So. And then we come across your family's book, originally written and published decades ago. Rather than me tell well, the story, not published, about it. Jefferson, not excuse published. me, excuse me, originally written, originally written, originally written, and not published. Forgive me, I already got it wrong. So rather than me screwing it up more and sealing your thunder, please tell us the story. Yeah, well, my my dad was a classicist, and I can tell from his books from the seventies that he was already really going for uh, the idea of modernizing a version of, uh, of Athens. He was defending the ancient Athenian way of democracy because it was very unfashionable. You couldn't be a supporter of Sortition as a classicist. It was considered very uh, uh, in as he might have said in his old 60s vocabulary. And the, uh, the thing is that uh, when he wrote the book, uh, based on you know decades of reading around the subject, he, even though he was a successfully published author, translated in several languages, because it wasn't his subject, because no one was talking about it, because no politician could be imagined who would change the constitution of a country to bring in sortition. And frankly, because I think people just thought it was unrealistic and utopian, they just, none of the publishers that published his books would take it. And after a few years, it just uh, he just put it to one side because he said I can't keep updating it I can't keep reading all the 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 democ- you know, the political science journals that you have to 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 keep it to keep it fresh and he was getting older and we used to I mean I read it at the time and I too I teased him now saying Dad you know what what are you thinking you know the, the, no one's ever going to do this and um, but he would you know take it and argue back and uh, and everything but. After a while, it, I think in a process that 
that happens, everyone just sort of vaguely forgot about it. And then when we, when he retired and everything, we said, why didn't you take on a project? Why didn't you re revisit that book? And he said, no, no, I can't. You take it. You take it. It's on the computer. We looked on the computer. Of course, people don't tell you this, but computers also degrade and the file was completely corrupted. So we thought it was lost. Um, then in 2019, my father died. And when my mother was going through his enormous library, she found on the bottom of one shelf, the typescript. And so she handed it over and started reading it. I was amazed. It was amazing. It was just speaking directly to what you were just saying about the modern times where sortition is suddenly fashionable again. I mean, because I listened to my dad back then, of course, I was reading the books as they came out. In the last 10 years, there have been a lot of books about sortition, which have picked up many of the ideas that he refers to. Um, but uh, the uh, I realized that it still had a lot to say. And I mean, he's quite radical, um, possibly because he was writing in a vacuum. I mean, there was no one else writing about it. So he had the field, as it were, all to himself. He didn't have to refer to anyone else. He didn't have to rebut anyone. He didn't have to build on anything. He, had, he, was he referred just... to the scholarship by referring to his previous paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, normally, normally what, um, because he was this extraordinary polymath, you know, he, he would quote um, ancient philosophers, uh, Roman Caesars, uh, medieval popes, uh, 18th century humanists, uh, 19th century romantic poets, you know, all in the same chapter to buttress his arguments. And so it's almost uh, it's like a distillation of a life's work. But the only challenge as the editor, because I kind of sat down and started editing it, uh, was to make sure that um, people would all know who he was talking about. So sort of putting in the first names, putting where they came from, <laughs> what their job was, as it were, and uh, and making it easy to understand for a non uh, sort of a non polymath. My father was someone who could who could quote whole books of Virgil off by heart. I don't know. That was the generation that was right. I mean, they 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 took their education seriously back then. And um, anyway, so I got the, got a, a text together, and then I thought, well, obviously, I thought no one's going to publish this. We know that. Um, I sent it off to You've three. It had already been lead. proven. It had been proven multiple times that I was going to publish it. You had evidence. Yeah. So we sent it off to some of the leaders in, in sortitional thinking who'd written great books like uh, Brett Hennig, David van Raybrook uh, in Belgium. Brett Hennig, uh, who, whose uh, Sortition Foundation is based in Britain, but he lives in Czechoslovakia and, uh, sorry, the Czech Republic. And, um, the, uh, and of course, Helen Landemont in, in Yale. And I didn't really expect to hear back from anyone, but Brett Hennig wrote back very enthusiastically and said, yes, it's, it's great, definitely worth printing. But Helen wrote back in three three days later and said she'd been blown away by reading the text. I had to print it up and that if we were going to print it up, she'd write the preface. And thanks to that, really, thanks to her support, we eventually even got a real publisher, uh, 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 one of the leading philosopher publishers of philosophy in in, uh, in in academic philosophy, Scottish philosophy, certainly, and with a series on sortition called Imprint Academic. And they are putting out the, the, the book from 7th of March. Well, congratulations. It's we fantastic. Honored to, yeah. We are honored to be part of, and at this stage, right, just the pre-release of the of, I want to call it a re-release, but the it's it's. <laughs> do, is there a name for this? Is there a name when an unpublished manuscript is then published? It's a posthumous you know, work. Is that it? Is it's just posthumous work? It's not. There, there's not a. 
there's not an active verb no unfortunately we can't come back that's it uh, we can uh, <laughs> we can try and channel but uh, right. well, you know which i obviously it's been a, an extraordinary feeling to 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 be working with a text written by one's father in his prime 30 years ago it's almost like having a conversation with him yeah and what's even weirder jefferson is that you know he predicted so much of what came to pass as it were for instance he says uh if you got ordinary people together and gave them the information and the trust and the mandate to do something an extraordinary energy and zest would be released he which is absolutely true if you've attended a citizens assembly that's exactly what's happened a well-organized one has this kind of buzz where you can feel and i've, I've just spent uh, um, uh, several weekends following the latest french uh, citizens assembly on end of life issues in 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 uh, in paris and i'm i'm astonished at the way the organization of groups of about 60 or 108 there's three groups of 60 which make up a plenary of 180 uh, it's and broken up into small groups of deliberation the way they work is almost exactly as my father suggested at the time i don't know how he got the idea and above all he said one of the early topics that could be usefully attended to by a, a, a citizens assembly he didn't call, call them citizens assembly, he called them uh, uh, panels um uh, is uh, mercy killing and so there yeah. i am uh, at this citizens assembly watching people doing roughly what my father imagined would happen um 30 years ago and you know this was not a man of the people this is a guy that loved his books he sat in his library all day long and yet he could imagine what what was what was going to happen so it's it's a really quite strange um eerie feeling i have to say sometimes so so your father predicted death panels the uh <laughs> it, it, something else resonates to me personally about your story which is uh which is the father-son dynamic and i'll explain so my dad uh well I'll, I'll i'll switch it i'll do it in the order i did that we did this uh one of the uh we started an organization uh, some friends of mine and i uh started an organization called honest elections in oregon and it was borrowing off of uh, some work done by uh, honest elections in washington and they had passed in seattle uh the uh, a coupon uh system for publicly financed elections right you get people get their people get their democracy dollars by whatever name and then they can donate those uh, and that's a way of of directing publicly financed uh, budgets towards elections. Uh, and what, what what was so interesting to me about that is I believe it was in 1972. I might have the year wrong. Uh, my dad gave a speech, which I read uh, it to the city club of uh, the city club here for what in my mind and in his mind was a novel idea. Right, which was, uh, and I think he called them democracy bucks. He might have called them something different, and it was essentially it's the precisely the same idea. And the response he got from people was, "Oh, that's crazy! That's crazy! That's crazy!" And it did not happen. And my reaction to him was, "You're crazy! You're crazy! You're crazy! You're just my crazy dad." And sure enough, he was just crazy four decades early. Mm -hmm. And and he was right then and he's right now. And there's other ways to do it. You know, low dollar matching systems work pretty well. We've talked about some of these on the air, but but I also honor and and more than empathize. I I 
I appreciate in an emotional way some of some of what I at least imagine to be uh, your dynamic as you as you work on the on the posthumous publication of your of your dad's work. What, what changed? And I could answer. I mean, anybody can answer some of this question. But what changed in the four decades from the 1980s to today? What uh, what shifted? You've talked a little bit about what stayed the same, but what what now? Other than people just waking up, maybe or just seeing the idea. What, what do you think? change the dynamics that made the publication proposition different now than it was in the 80s? Well, first of all, on the question of ideas, obviously ideas uh, can be had at any time. It's a question of whether they fall on fertile ground and uh, books about sortition have been written since Aristotle. And um, so it's all a question of whether the circumstances are propitious. And I think that would that would answer a bit your your question about why now. I think that in the 1980s, people had this belief that uh, you know this end of history idea wasn't quite end of history in the 80s, but uh, you know come 89, 90, people felt that what they thought of as democracy, which was in fact what we now see as an, uh, really an election-based system, there are many kinds of democracies. Um, or, uh, people use democracy to label many things. Um, and th there was a confidence that the West was right and the Western model was right. And uh, no one needed to think about uh, the actual way way of government, the, 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 the Western government, way of government was clearly superior. And so uh, the extension of elections to all these former Soviet countries or former Soviet-dominated countries was uh, a natural progression. And of course, you know, the election systems are better than theocracies and absolute monarchies. And, they definitely, and universal suffrage is definitely better than how it was in the mid-19th century when only a few dozen percent or a dozen percent of the people had the vote. So, you know, there was a progression, I think, that still people felt, people still felt was uh, advancing in the 1980s. But since about 2010, I think that people have lost faith in that. And all the all the the polling companies are finding it. Um, for instance, I mean, just Gallup in 2018 found that in OECD countries, only 45% of the citizens trust their government. Um, in the USA, I think that 73% said of Americans said they could trust the government in 1958, so three quarters nearly, and is now in 2018 down to 31%. That's a Pew Research Center and Gallup, um, and I think that. Uh, and OECD did a survey in 2019, and uh, they, they're on average 60% in the 20 countries that they that they covered disagreed that the government took their views into account. So people felt that, that nobody was listening to them. Um, I think in, in America, you've had appallingly low rates of confidence in, in Congress. I've seen one figure of 9%, and then you see turnout. I mean, the, what were the midterms? Less than half of the voters came out. And uh, the, the, what is fascinating to me is that since getting involved in sortition work, I was, for instance, invited to, to, to talk about sortition with the, the president of the Brussels parliament. I live in Belgium and Brussels is one of the federal areas and there's a parliament. And the president there, Magali Plovi, is experimenting with sortition by not having citizens assemblies, but by mixing MPs with randomly selected uh, uh, citizens at a ratio I think of one quarter to three quarters, and the uh, come. So when they have a a, a, um, 
a topic that they need to debate. It's done in that committee. And she says she's doing it partly to restore a culture of debate to a parliament because the multi-party system in Belgium has become so party dominated that no one discusses anything in parliament anymore, which makes a mockery of the whole idea of elections. And secondly, she said, because we politicians feel that the people don't trust us anymore. We've got to re-engage. We feel that unless we reach out to the citizens, we'll lose the end of the string. You know, we won't be able to catch them again. So Fukuyama says, end of history, there's a sense we've got to figure it out, right? That, that Hitler and the Soviet Union have been defeated, and now we've got the answer, and there's a few stragglers maybe, but we've got it figured out. And now it's like, wait, maybe we don't have it figured out. And so there's greater uh, acknowledged need to do more work on figuring it out. And other part of that, we don't, uh, even the word politician seems to mean other. It seems to mean a, a, a class of person who almost by definition doesn't represent us, which I think is an unfortunate misunderstanding of the word. Uh, but nonetheless, how are we going to, how can we ensure, how can we even rebuild the sense that the people who are making decisions, in fact, represent us? Well, make sure that they do and do it with arithmetic. I want to talk a little bit about your dad or have you talk a little bit about your dad. He was... Uh, a classicist, which is, you know, probably not that dense a term, but, you know, somebody who was involved in the studies of ancient Greece and Rome uh, as sort of the classical eras. Uh, former, de As I understand it, he was a former dean of humanities at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And then he left. Tell us that story and when, what happened to him. My father left, like many people in, in Britain after the Second World War, for somewhere else because it was so miserable in, in the United Kingdom after the uh, after the Second World War. So he went to South Africa uh, and was hired there by the University of Cape Town, and he worked for some 20 years there. Um, he became the dean of the faculty, and uh, at a certain point, the faculty, some one of the departments, appointed a an African to be a senior lecturer in African studies and uh, a very well qualified person uh, who really wanted the job. Uh, and uh, the university said yes. And then the government got in touch and said, no, you can't do that. We, we're, we're not allowing people of color to take jobs. And the university, uh, for various reasons of uh, indirect pressure and threats by the government, they they said, oh, all right, we won't appoint him. And my father, in a, in a rather impulsive move, heard about this late uh, after, you know, after it had happened and immediately resigned on the spot, uh, which was um, quite dramatic. And then he decided after that, uh, well, he decided after that to leave uh, South Africa and go back to Britain. And you know, the, the reason he gave for doing it was quite simply said that uh, once you have a government presiding over the appointment of any academics for any reasons, it's no longer a university. Uh, but of course, he was involved intellectually and uh, not as a street activist, but uh, certainly with, it moved in those circles with the anti-apartheid campaigners of the day. Um, so um, yeah, he, he left and uh, came went to Oxford and uh, had to rebuild uh, his career as an independent uh, scholar, which wasn't very easy for him. And but I suppose it gave him the freedom to to think uh, think great thoughts because we certainly weren't catching up with him. How old were you during all that? 
nine years old when we left. And what was the impact was, on you? Uh, quite, quite a wrench. I mean, yeah, obviously, South Africa for a middle-class white boy was, uh, you know, Cape Town's beautiful place. I loved it, and uh, uh, you know, the, the 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 clashes had not started at that point. Um, and uh, so, then obviously, at the age of nine, you don't question much about the uh, political environment. So, uh, I've mainly you know, going, finding yourself in a sort of uh, a beautiful place and ending up in a rather cold, damp place where, I don't know, the Britain, I think, it, it lost its way somewhere. And um, anyway, I, uh, I, 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 I was educated in England. Um, I'm glad of that. And I'm obviously of British English culture some, some uh, to a greater or larger extent. But um, yeah, I, I haven't lived or worked there since uh, I left university. It seems to end what year? So, so again, clarify the year, the year he leaves, your family leaves Cape Town. When was that? 1969. Okay. So he writes this book mm-hmm. and doesn't get it published. Mm-hmm. And I am now going to guess, or maybe I should put it in the form of a question, but my form of a guess is if he had been, the if he had been transferred, if he had not protested white supremacy at the cost of his job, that he would have been in a tenured position at a university. That maybe changes the publication likelihood math. Uh, my mother says he was always in, interested in the subject, so I think he would he might have he might have come across that subject. But the odd thing is, he he was interested in all kinds of political systems. He he's actually got mostly in trouble in Cape Town. Is that he used to defend the Ottoman Empire's system of managing minorities, uh, which was a fairly you know, allow the minorities great freedoms, which in the South African context obviously made sense of sort of letting instead of oppressing them and forcing them into geographic areas and giving them. Uh, complicated paperwork if they wanted to move anywhere just let them let them manage themselves but really manage themselves i think that was a little bit of a a, a, a rosy rose-tinted view of ottoman practice but uh yeah he was always thinking about things like that um but i, don't I, know said, but I asked something different i said publication not writing i hadn't mm. it hadn't occurred to me maybe he doesn't maybe he doesn't write the book Right. If he's still if he's, you know, spending his time mostly as a classes. But actually what I meant was merely if he had a perch as a tenured professor, does that change the way the manuscript lands at a publisher's office and make it more likely that the thing gets printed 40 years ago? I don't know. I don't think so. I think that they people just couldn't take it. They, they couldn't handle it. And uh, it's it is very subversive, Sortition. It is. Envisaging a system that ultimately removes power from politicians and hands it to the people. And it has to be managed very carefully because, of course, you can't just suddenly go one day from a system where the army and the forces of law and order are controlled by elected politicians to one where you have an untried system that no one knows about. And not, not certainly today, they're not informed about what it can do and can't do, and people aren't used to it. And so um, I think now there's a bit of experience of them, you can plausibly say things. But my father's book is still very radical by the standards of the uh, of, of the last 10 years. I mean, people have written books, but no one is going as far as my father did, which is to propose that 
all three branches of government be turned over to sortition-based management. And uh, you, when he gets to his utopia, there's pretty radical redistribution of wealth because one of the things that he's very concerned about is um, the, the the differences in, in, in the inequality that in his, his imagined utopia, which is... Um, uh, a community that starts in Antarctica and moves to New Zealand after a nuclear holocaust that has wiped out the rest of the world. It's very radical, isn't it? And um, he, he, the, the big developmental problem they have is that the, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and they find ways to manage that. It's a, it's a fascinating utopia because they go through several phases where decision-making that involves everybody proves crucial to keeping the community together. And frankly, I find that as one of the, the the sources of hope that I've felt while working on all this sortition material is that the, the 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 wings on both left and right that feel that they're completely excluded from national debates that the politicians aren't listening to them and and so forth they have very similar complaints really, but on both sides can be brought back into the fold, as it were, by the system where the, everybody is just representing themselves briefly in, uh, in, in in some kind of committee. But yeah, I'm not pretending this is going to happen tomorrow. Uh, and I think that um, uh, uh, I think the, the ideas there are just too, were always going to be too way out in 1980s to get published. I mean, even, uh, even uh, though today uh, they seem sort of plausible. So, what is I don't know, understand I don't know the life I will acknowledge of an independent scholar, and and I will just say, crackpot ideas, uh, published by a tenured chair, can come across as you know sort of history revisited and it just could land differently. Or if it's a crackpot idea from somebody who you know had a tenured chair, well maybe it doesn't seem like crackpot idea. Crackpot idea from somebody who's an independent scholar, well maybe it's just a crackpot idea from a crackpot. Uh, and and that's mm. but that's just my that's my speculation. One of the and, and, my, and the reason I offer the speculation mm. is that yeah. your dad's sacrifice my seems really meaningful, and and it could be meaningful that it gave him uh, more time and freedom to go wherever his brain needed to take him, and that was a historic inevitability. It also uh, can be meaningful that it impacted the platform from which he uh, attempted to publish. I find both parts interesting, but we can you can comment on or we can move on. I'll, I'll move on by going on to one one of the chapters in the book, which kind of touches on this. You know, how do people get new ideas? And for me, the one of the most enriching parts of the book was that he doesn't talk about the he talks about the process, but he also talks about the philosophy behind uh, sortition and random selection, democracy by lot, whatever you want to call it. And one of the most interesting chapters he compares amateurs and experts and how how breakthroughs are made and he he really nails it i think um when he uh he 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 points out that experts if you know if history if the world was run by experts there would and could be successfully run by experts there would be no history because they would already know what was going to happen and that's the thing about experts they only know about the past and they can only take uh be effective in areas where the the the, the there is 
most of the problems have been solved. When you come up for some, with something new, like a Galileo or a, or a William Harvey uh, in terms of circulation of the blood, Galileo obviously discovering uh, the, the, the moon is round, you ha what happens, according to him, is that you... Galileo was obviously an astronomer. William Harvey was actually obviously a medical expert, a doctor. But these are people who are ready to go outside the boundaries of their own expertise and benefit from the expertise of others. And if you ask me, my father, who was also quite a good mathematician and also uh, had read very widely and published very widely about Shakespeare, about medieval medicine, about other things, I think that those other channels that his independent scholarship forced him into enriched him in a way that he could see that, gosh, I can put this puzzle together away, uh, uh, this puzzle together in a new, different way, and it makes a lot more sense to me. Obviously, he didn't convince people in his own lifetime, but actually the world caught up with him uh, or you know, it wasn't catching up with him because he hadn't published, but um, caught up with these ideas. And now they are... Uh, it's niche, but it's it's uh, it's respected at least. No, it's fascinating, and and when I was hunting for a word, like normally the posthumous uh, publication, it tends to be somewhat recent, right? It tends to be like, oh, they're almost done, and so we'll finish <laughs> it for them, right? It's like they yeah. had, they 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 had some post production work to do. There was some editing that had to be done. They wanted to finish one song, right? The uh, and and they fell ill. And this is this is not that it's different, but I want to not just fix it. And then I want to talk about you and your own experiences as an advocate for sortition. You're, you have a blog, hughpope.com. Uh, you document the efforts of citizen assemblies around the world. Uh, what is your experience? Have you been involved in those assemblies strictly as an observer, sometimes as a participant? Uh, and yeah, talk about your experience. I'm very new to all this, obviously, and I had to, you know, I contacted the leaders in the field. And one of the most extraordinary things to me was the degree to which people welcomed me in. So I was immediately uh, very pleasantly surprised by that because most guilds uh, make you go through all kinds of hazing and, uh, and periods on the outside and hard work, but really people were very welcoming. And so that encouraged me to go in further and to start. I, for instance, I went to a kind of sortition school in uh, which was organised by a group of enthusiasts and listened to um, uh, the 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 to me the, the 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 great gods of the sortition world today. The uh, talk about their experiences, uh, in, you know, including insights like uh, one of the big differences that you immediately find when you attend a citizens assembly, which I now have, and which they talked about in the school was how the citizens are on kind of best behavior. They, do, they really feel proud that they're doing their civic duty and you can feel it. It's almost tangible. And what the, the, they talked about it in the school, they said, this is called the best behavior. And the trouble with this best behavior is that people can't keep it up if the system is professionalized. So the thing about random selection that most, I think most people on the outside think about it is that, okay, so you have a president. So instead of having the president, you randomly select any sort of Joe blogs to come in and be the president. It's not like that at all. You have to change the whole system to get a proper decision-making process in train. And one of the key elements of that decision-making process is that it has to, it has to harvest that 
civic duty, that goodwill that you can feel uh, among the citizens. So that's definitely one thing I, I, I've learned about it. Another thing is how, uh, and this I'm talking about the 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 citizens' assembly about end of life issues in. Um, in Paris, which, by the way, was briefed by an expert from Oregon, um, very interestingly, because you and are, are pioneers in the United States in that area, too, I have now learned. But so the first weekend that the that the participants gathered, the, it would, people were very tentative, not at all uh, sure of what was going to happen, very proud that they were there, determined to make it work, but not knowing anything about the subject and and feeling very much like greenhorns. And then I watched them as I, and last time I was there was the fifth weekend. And uh, the the level to which people had become confident uh, was extraordinary. Uh, it was a result of having listened to lots of experts and realizing that the experts simply don't agree. They you Anybody can see that because they have to explain themselves to 185 ordinary people that represent the full diversity of France. So they have to make everything accessible and intelligible. And I think they rise to the occasion. They were very impressive expert briefings, but with completely opposite, you know, opposite points of view. You know, you can assist suicide at the end of life or you can't. And these are two radically difficult, different approaches. And so the citizens then saw that they had a job to do to find out how to manage the change that the government wants them to propose to the French law. And I have to say that the last debate that I was sitting in, um, people were really debating. These were just ordinary people who just two months ago had would hardly raise their voices, were sitting there and making their points it, with eloquence and clarity. And I thought that was amazing and really gave me faith that ordinary people can do the job with obviously the right organization, the right support, the right facilitation, even the use of graphic art helps. I mean, there's lots of things you can do to help people, but they can do it. Ordinary people can do it. Best behavior point I want to return to. Mm -hmm. the, I was sharing with a friend of mine who purports to be a lover of democracy as well. And and he said, well, Jeff, the thing I don't like to admit all the time is that I'm an elitist. I, I think there is a role, it's kind of a dirty word, but I believe there is a role for elites, for people who are really good at what they do. And that includes policymaking. And this cuts against my best sense of the value of elitism. And given that we were having a porch conversation and not a, uh, and not a televised debate, I didn't have to whack him across the brain with his defense of elitism. It was a safe space to share that view. And, 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 and it's a legitimate view, right? It, very often people would say, well, why, but if I'm going to, if I'm going to have uh, surgery performed on me, I'm not going to do it by lottery. Uh, and who is to say that climate policy is less important than surgery. Uh, and, and I could pick any number of dozens of talking points to essentially make the same somewhat clumsy argument. Uh, the best behavior point flips that it says no it's not merely it's not it's not merely what score you got on a test as a school child it's not merely uh, what you've published or who out in the world has said that you're smart it, it is in fact who we are in the moment of decision the moment of evaluation and what we're basing that upon and and that that, that our that our motivation 
matter so very much. Right? Even, even Kant says, right? Kant says, to go to start with motive. What you just said is that if people are called to service for a jury, and people who've seen a jury system know this to be true. People are there in a jury and they really want to do the right thing, right? I mean, they really want to do the right thing. And if you call people to the jury, they want to do the right thing, but you also something, said something else. But eventually that could wear off. <laughs> if, it, if they start getting paid to do it, it wears off because you forget. Eventually you can start feeling entitled. And entitlement has a very different motivation and, and a very different set of outcomes. What we know is when people start feeling entitled, they're meaner drivers, right? They're just, they're jerkier to wait staff once people start feeling entitled. Uh, and also other motivations start to get more pointed that, well, I would really like to keep this job. Uh, I might even like to get a promotion from this job in a very related field. Exactly. And here are the people who seem to have a lot of influence over who will get that job. And that I might want to keep or get. And then you also start listening to those people and their views, to be clear, are motivated. Those, those views are motivated because it's their job to have that view or they were hired because they had that view. So I think that that expertise, sorry, Jefferson, here, the, I think that expertise argument, you're quite right. You put your finger on one of the main fears of people about sortition, that they're going to be run by, by amateurs. Um, now, I have to, one of the mo more interesting points my father makes in his book, it may be a common philosophical point, but it was new to me, is that the difference between uh, a, a team and a community. A team is focused on a goal temporarily to achieve an object, to fly a plane from uh, Portland to Seattle and get that job done, and then there will be a new team to probably to fly the plane back. And uh, it's completely different from taking an ethical, moral decision, which requires a balancing of different segments of a population. And those kinds of decisions are related to a community. And teams are normally pretty small. And teams can turn into organizations, which are kind of midway point, where you, you, you it's like a job, where you're, you know, for, at least for the first period, it may feel like a team, but it gradually turns into an organization. And sometimes it can even turn into something close to a community. After you've worked in the same place for 30 years, you probably feel like you're part of a community. And it, it, it's, a, it's a different set of circumstances. And when you come to a country where you live, 95% of the people are born into it. They never, they never ask to be French or American, but they, they are that. And therefore, they have a natural right to everything that happens there. And so, in terms of teamwork, like flying planes, piloting ships, um, uh, the, these, are, these are skills and expertise you absolutely need. And of course, in the organizational area, a sortition-based system would appoint a director of a water company or to, to run it. And then the director would report back after a year and say, this is what I did. Is this okay? And the committee of citizens would say, yeah, it looks fine. Carry on or take have a new one. And, but when it comes to uh, the whole community, there's no one person that can speak for everybody or, you know, unless my father says, unless that community is at war and that 
there they've suddenly the, the nation has become a team and has to fight. And so everything's suspended. As you saw in the Second World War in Britain, everyone got behind Churchill. It wasn't a particularly popular man. And as soon as the war ended, they chucked him out. Um, that was an electoral response, of course, but it just shows that a team leader is is not necessarily someone who, even a successful team leader, is not necessarily seen as someone who answers all the problems of a community. So I, th I think that that, spectrum is something that can be um sorry that spectrum is is something that uh, is, is a great way to look at when you need expertise and when you need uh, a different system that's going to take all points of view in a community uh, into uh, into account and the, the the wonder of mathematics is that the sampling of these small groups of people uh, there are 12 people in a jury, already gets you to an enormously re representative number of divisions, subdivisions of a community. But most countries can and should be run by an assembly of about 500 people. That's about the right number mathematically to represent almost all the, the cross-sections of, of, of the communities, you know, up to a few hundred million people. Um, and that that is... Uh, it's know, a large I, body. I, I, it's a large, it's a large body, and actually, towards the end of the book, he, he, my father says, "Well, actually, if you think about it, um, people think that the, the larger the amount of people, the, the 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 more useful it would be to have a single person in charge, you know, a great president or a monarch or, or something like that." But in fact, in ancient Greece, at least, it was seen that the the, the, the smaller bodies of people could have kings. And in some Greek cities, they had two or three kings, rather weirdly. And um, as you get into bigger groups of people, in fact, theoretically anyway, the the uh, the validity of the sortition argument works. And if you go up to the scale of the whole world, where in, indisputably we are all part of the community of human beings, you could theoretically with a body of six or 7,000 people, probably half the size of the annual American dentists um, uh, conference, I don't know, but you could be representing everybody to a decent degree with six or 7,000 people. And that might be a first step to not world government, but at least a way of, uh, uh, of putting all the humans on the world in one place. It's a, it's a fascinating idea. And that's what I love about it. I mean, this may not happen tomorrow, Jefferson, I know, but it's uh, it's uh, it, when you think of how dysfunctional the UN is and how we're expected to re respect it and and um, uh, and and deal with it because it's all we have. I think it's I think it's interesting to think about new ideas about how how things could be. I find the the this whole argument that democracy and that famous Churchillian quote is, you know, all forms of uh, all, uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other forms of government that have been invented. I find that an terribly uninspiring um, uh, motto. I think that uh, I think we should have something a little bit more. No, and if and if the Allies had lost World War II, it would not be a famous quote. <laughs> That's true. I don't think somehow I think that the, the other side was not on a winning streak in that war. I think that they were they were uh, anyway. So given that or at least with that as a jumping off point or as a transition point, where do we think if we think, okay, uh, we want representation and 
finding this, you didn't use the word balance, but uh, between the uh, various interests, including representation, including best behavior, which is a big one, which is a big one. In fact, I think lots of people would say a fundamental challenge of Congress is that there are layers, layers of, of not just voters, but media and lobbyists and now billions of dollars that are, that are again, motivated at political parties, et cetera. Uh, between finding the best answer and the brain and communication of the people, you know, conversations of people that are making those decisions. Uh, and if we're balance those interests of best behavior and, and expertise uh, and representation, those are at least three interests. Uh, and if we also say that getting to a 500 person lottery based unicameral or bicameral uh, legislative set of chambers in the United States or in some other country feels like it's not going to happen in the next several months, then what are the places that you think are the most sensible for applying citizens' assemblies now? Either the ones that you've seen, you've talked about, uh, you've talked about death and dying. What are other, other areas where you think that, that it feels ripe, where the ground is fertile? to use your word, uh, to enact panels now, citizen assemblies now. You're quite right. The establishment does not want to let go. There is so much writing on this. And they but, get to decide. Yeah, they do get <laughs> like, to decide. Like, but but there, are not, there are not ballot initiatives, you know, citizen-led ballot initiatives for nationwide in most countries, right? So this could happen locally. It could happen state by state. It could happen at the margins. But where, yeah, where do you think it can happen? Well, uh, as I mentioned before, in a little place like Brussels, where it's it's a bit like a petri dish, you know, it's not this, this is not this is not a, a, a major world power, but a politician there sees that they're losing the plot, and so is is reaching out to randomly selected citizens to try and reinforce their legitimacy and credibility. I see that as a really interesting development. The Bundestag in Germany, a successful country, has also commissioned now three citizens' assemblies to look into topics over the next few years that are yet to be decided. It's all very new, uh, but it's happening. The convention in Paris that I've been attending on the end of life, it's the second one. There was one on climate. There will be others, I'm sure. They are very good at organizing them, uh, and they are coming up with actionable ideas. The climate conference was initially thought to have been something of a failure because only 10% of the 149 proposals of the convention were actually carried out in the short term. But actually, the thinking that was developed in that convention has actually moved into the legislature by the back door. People are adopting suggestions they made. It's much, much, it's seen as much more of a success now. And my own country of origin, uh, Britain, Look at the House of Lords. I mean, there's nearly 800 people there, uh, and one they are pure representatives of the elite. 90 of them, or well, 92 of them actually, are born aristocrats. Then you have the archbishops, and then you have the law lords, and then you have the famous people, and then you have the rich people who've given money to parties. And But the, the one thing that keeps them... They're all on the same page. On is they're all members of the uh, of the ruling class, the elite, um, and no one knows what they do. Uh, there is a movement now to 
change that into some kind of representative uh, randomly selected chamber. As I said, the, that's an interesting priority. That, yeah, that, but you because, can't because house, do I, it. I, I hate the House of Lords more than I hate the monarchy. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Because uh, at least the monarchy the, gives me fun stories, right? At least like my, <laughs> my wife can listen to the audiobook spare, right? Which means yeah. I listen to a few minutes of it here and there in the kitchen. You know, yeah. it gives it gives all kinds of grocery store tabloid headlines. I mean, at least I, the House of Lords, all I have, you know, all I hear about it is contempt. It's very difficult. And the, the thing is, though, you can't just replace it with randomly selected people because then they will become the elite. If you don't have a new system of rotation and yeah. uh, and to, to maintain that sense of civic duty towards the issues of the day, otherwise there's no point in doing it. You might as well just leave it with the people who've got it. I mean, you have to you have to somehow uh, uh, carry carry through or believe in what you're doing. And, well, that's um, that's actually, and I misstated my question because I said where. And you gave a helpful example, sort of geographic uh, examples, mm -hmm. and the and embedded within that got a different kind of where, which is under what circumstances. And you said, well, maybe ad hoc topics, right? You impanel a jury, you impanel a panel, you impanel For now, yes. assembly to do something. Mm. I'm also interested in the question of where, in terms of around what topic are there kinds of topics, are there categories of decision uh, that make particular sense where there's been more demonstrated uh, success. In addition, everything you said, right? I'm continuing to ask essentially the same question is, give me more, give me more. Other places where we've seen it or other places that people should move to next. And I say this in part because there are lovers of democracy who listen to this show, dozens of them. And my hope <laughs> is that some of them will push in their own town, right? Because it might be when you do the House of Lords, for instance, it's like, okay, we'll just have, we'll have random lords now. And well, they'll just get, they'll get just as entitled as the others without, you know, generations exactly. of learning how exactly. to deal with it. So exactly. you have to build a different system. So as we think about the next system, yeah. moving beyond ad hoc, are yeah. there, or, or, or how do you systemize ad hoc under what hocs should be added? Uh, yeah. So well, yeah, say I more think... about category. Jefferson, I think no one knows the answer to that yet. I'm on the board of advisors of a wonderful organization called very close to Democracy Nerd. In fact, it's called Democracy Next. Democracy Next, run by a wonderful lady called Claudia Huelish, who's, uh, I believe, in that, Oregon. That title is much more fundable. Democracy Next. That's like that's <laughs> like what you do with like a VC. The venture capitalists came up with democracy. Right? That's great. Or a publisher in the Atlantic. Anyway, go on. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Democracy Next has an ambition to produce a paradigm, uh, something that will work out the system that could harness the full potential of sortition. Uh, and but they recognize, to some extent, we recognize that uh, that uh, that's going to take some time to 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 find out. Currently, at the stage of where we are, where sortition is something that. I hesitate to call myself uh, as great a nerd as you might be, Jefferson. But I, you know, no, I no, feel to be clear, like I've... to be clear, I'm a channel for the true democracy nerds. The true democracy nerds are the guests. It is not. <laughs> a, we even argued about the title, and I've often thought we should add an S because it should not refer to me. I am. A, <laughs> I am a. I, I, I don't know what I deserve to be called, but I am the lead, uh, too often the lead. If nerdy is a compliment, I too seldom deserve it. Go on. <laughs> anyway, the um, the. The, at the stage we're at, people aren't yet 
convinced by 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 citizens' assemblies, they they can't move into the mainstream. So what they're best at right now is what people in who are sortition nerds call the wicked problems, and the sortition has been very successful there. You've talked in, in previous podcasts about what happened in Ireland, where they, they had a constitutional um, assemb- uh, citizens' assembly, where they managed to square the circle on abortion and get that get the laws liberalized a bit there for people. They managed the same on same-sex marriage in Ireland through the use of a citizens' assembly, which was a way of uh, of bringing to the surface what public opinion was ready to do in a way that politicians were not ready to speak out for because they were afraid of losing a few percent of competitive advantage in the polls. And that's the kind of thing that uh, people are turning to. In France, the reason that President Macron uh, decided to use an end-of-life issue was that he knew, I'm sure, that 92% of French people are ready to modernize the laws and allow some uh, mercy, mercy killing, or euthanasia, or assisted suicide, and uh, uh, and indeed, it seems that's the way the the citizens in that assembly are going, and so he can turn to the turn to their proposals. Probably, we don't know what they will propose exactly, but without too much political damage from conservatives and Catholics who'd rather not go in that direction. So. Um, you know, th- these kinds of wicked problems are being worked on by citizens' assemblies, being, being worked on very successfully. The challenge for the citizens' assembly movements or the sortition movement is to, to make other people hear about it and understand it, uh, because those who attend one are miraculously changed. For instance, the, the, the group that uh, attended the, the 150 people who became who joined the French Climate Convention have, have continued... In, into the hereafter as, as, a, as a kind of civil society organization um, and called the 150, um, I, you know, of whom about half apparently are, are really active. And, and I think about one in five of them has actually gone into political activism as a result of, of, of having exposure to real information and deliberation and decision-making. Uh, it, it, it inspired them to get involved and I think that's something that is so important for the future is that the apathy, alienation, and polarization has to be dealt with. And the one of the best ways is to give people something to do, give them a part to play, and then they will they will feel like they own the experience of living and working and uh, uh, and loving and uh, uh, and everything in a society. Kyle wanted me to ask you about Newmanalism and wanted you to give us a crash course on it. Uh, that, as I understand it, my cursory understanding is the doctrine of things in themselves believed in by intellect rather than perceived by the senses. Uh, the uh, uh, yeah, tell us more. I had no idea what Newmanalism was when I saw it in my father's book as I was editing it. So I did have to give myself my own crash course on it. And it comes up in one of the most fascinating chapters where my father goes into the philosophy of randomness and pure chance. Why should we believe in pure chance? I think it's a fascinating, it's a great question. And he starts off by pointing out that pure chance has actually huge uses in science. In physics, when you make an astronomer's mirror, when you polish it, 
you have to have a random pattern. Otherwise, it will not give an accurate view of the stars. In medicine, when you're making artificial linings for arteries, they have to be randomly patterned. Otherwise, they won't work. And in the propagation of a species, they will not be perfectly propagated unless you have perfect randomness in the mating and breeding. So randomness has a, a place in our lives that's scientific, but even before we get to the philosophy of things. Numinalism is another way of talking about what Plato argued for. And I'm probably grossly oversimplifying, but I think Plato could be said to have believed that there, were, there was a truth and people could know it and the people who knew it should be in charge, basically. And they are the polar opposite of the Epicureans who favor randomness. And the, basic, the followers of Plato, according to my father's book, because I am not a specialist in this, they support the idea that, um, that because only some can have full knowledge, uh, that it's, it's better to have an autocracy. And in the, according to my father, again, in the numinalist picture of things, it's those people who matter. Uh, and the lives of the many have no real value except as instruments to execute the designs of those leaders. Now, in the Epicurean side of things, there is no that's That's my Seinfeld not very good impression of, uh, of his contempt for his contempt for authoritarians. Go on. <laughs> yeah. So for the Epicureans, um, they, have a, they, they have an idea of the universe, which is even weirder than the Platonic one at first, when you think about it, which is this, this huge curtain of atoms falling through space in, in one line, and then suddenly a, butterf a butterfly's wing in the forest flaps, or for some reason the atom diverts and something happens, and it's all random. Um, and they also believe that everyone's linked, that there's no brain without a body, and that all the members of a society contribute each a little to its total life. And therefore, if you link that also with the management of knowledge, where the management of a knowledge in an autocracy is just one person, and the opinions can only be roughly sort of trying to predict what that autocrat is going to do, and then you come over all the way to uh, democracy, where public opinion is, is the driver of, of, of what gets done. I mean, democracy, I mean, sortitional democracy, because this kind of electoral democracy that we have, that, that produces oligarchies. And there you probably have informed opinion, right? At least according to my father's scheme of things. And the, the question of who's right or wrong uh, has, never, has never been really nailed down, but it's, it's clear that autocrats like Plato and, you know, Democrats, people who want to hand over to ordinary people are Epicureans. Um, and in the end, the way my father puts it is that there is not a fact in the world that can be called certain in an absolute sense, only in terms of probability. And the only measuring rod of probability is chance. And so he gives, he hands the argument to the Epicureans and does not believe that there is one one perfect truth that is uh, that, that that needs a, a, a temple load of priests to interpret it he wants the, the the ordinary people to be the arbiters of their own affairs and to all work together yeah 
so that the that is it that randomness gets better answers or is it randomness is more fundamentally justifiable is it an argument of merit or is an argument is an argument rather of result or is an argument more of intrinsic value and legitimacy derived therefrom one of the most important bedrocks of sortition is the mathematical uh, side of it and that's one of the reasons that my in one of the radical things that my father has in the book is that he insists that if people move to a full system of sortition it has to be mandatory you can't have the current scheme of things where it's voluntary and only 10 15 maximum 20 percent of the people who are invited to join come of course once they're invited they're once again stratified people try and make it representative of the community and it's very good it's very diverse it looks right but it's still not the mathematical mathematically um uh perfect formula for getting the best representativity and the representativity is what gives you the best decisions that take everybody into account however the other interesting maths is that you you if you have a large number of people and you give them only a very slightly better chance of being right half the time you very soon get a situation that if you have a consensual result which is the very interesting thing about uh, citizens assemblies is that they will seek a consensus they're looking for 75 85 percent of people agree and if they if there's no agreement on that then you just put it to one side now i'm hesitating a bit because the the the, the mathematics of that is is somewhat contested but at least it is uh according to some experts you can prove that uh, a, a group of people can make a very good decision. And the reason that I'm hesitating is that there's also a counter argument that groups can be swayed by very persuasive people. And that happened even in Athens. You had orators who could sweep the assembly off its feet and get them to do to declare war at a crazy time, and, which of course every, no elected politician would ever do, right? But um, no, so, And every trial lawyer knows that the selection of the jury foreman four person matters and yeah. every trial lawyer and, and some trial lawyers get nervous if they see someone who is uh during voir dire during jury selection uh sort of too obviously a person of authority perhaps they themselves were a lawyer or them seemed like somebody who might be too persuasive that one or the other lawyer if they get a glimmer that that person might might both be able to sway the jury and might not be on their side then one or the other lawyer might well ding that person. That's yeah, that that completely against the whole principles of random selection. But uh, it is it's an issue, um, and uh, clearly we are influenced by other people. Um, but the the glory of the citizens assembly method is the information gathering stage, uh, where the citizens uh, do gradually, if properly facilitated properly organized they gradually have the courage of their convictions and are really able to speak for their own personal conscience because obviously they represent no one but themselves and that's the the critical ingredient of the randomness is that when you meet each other that first day you're all there you're all there as completely equal there's no race no color 
uh, no language, no ethnic group that, that, that is the reason that you're there. And that's the reason that some feminists are seeing that the citizens' assembly format gives a stronger basis for fem female empowerment than these kind of diversity programs, which insist on a certain number of women. Because, of course, in a citizens' assembly, it has to be half and half men and women, because that's that's what the population is. So the women can be there as themselves, not as representing women or not feeling that maybe I'm here only because I'm a woman or I, because I'm a woman, I can't be doing this or that. So there is a, there's a, a lot of um, benefits like that. Yeah, and in studies of the law school experience, for instance, you know that that uh, an advantage, an artificial a, a, a advantage that was hypothesized or theorized, that was more than hypothesized, uh, that uh, when they would explain, well, why are you know, decades ago, you know, why were men having uh, recording better experiences in law school than women? You know, one of the answers was because they had a lot of voices. Because when it when there was a Socratic method where you had to uh, speak out and in the uh, in the words of the film Paper Chase, fill the room with your intelligence. Uh, that if it was harder for you to fill the room because your average weight was lower because you'd been trained socially to be a little quieter, uh, then then that could generate stress and impact one's uh, one's experience and maybe even one's performance. That that if we can have a system that is based on that actually represents humanity, it lends itself. It it, it has strong arguments for it. Uh, Kyle, had another question. Kyle is our producer. Uh, your father asks if sortition is noble or base. How would a numinalist answer that question? The lottery seems maybe perhaps the least respectable of activities. No, numinalists don't like democracy. I mean, Plato hated democracy, and uh, the 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 whole idea that uh, you hand over power to inexpert people, inexpert people, is is anathema to to them. And uh, therefore, definitely, a numinalist would think of uh, democracy in the proper Greek. Uh, sense of the word of randomly selected citizens running the country or the, the city, uh, they would definitely say it's base. Yes. That's that I'm pretty sure is the answer. The... He says with the lack of entire conviction. <laughs> <laughs> so if we were uh, returning to this question of next steps of things that you're still questions, you're still looking into, and maybe that is just, where is it going to strike next? Where are the, best opportunities for Titian or, or sortition. Maybe those questions are uh, who are key allies. Maybe those questions are uh, what are elements of the process that still need to be figured out. You mentioned that, well, good facilitation we know is important. You have to make sure the person with the loudest voice who is selected is not the person who runs uh, runs all of the discussion. What are What's still on your mind? What do you imagine posting next on your blog? What do you imagine the sequel to your dad's book being, obviously by a different author? What are the questions that are still driving your curiosity? I spent most of my career working in completely shattered countries. Okay, I, I worked in, the, in Iran, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, uh, the post-Soviet space. Um, 
which is one reason that I hope that when this transition comes to sortition, it's an evolution and not a revolution. I hope no one loses suddenly because uh, the, uh, the, the the one thing I learned watching, and I've actually been in the streets of revolutions, and the one thing that happens in a revolution is that the revolutionists think they can have everything that they already have plus something, and uh, it turns out that you uh, you actually have to start from zero. You start from the beginning again, and it's it's painful. Um, so what? What do I, I dream actually of the day that this kind of methodology can be applied to some of the countries where I used to work. Um, and for instance, the starting point of the frozen conflicts like Cyprus, for instance, where no one's getting killed. It's, uh, it's, a, it's like a wicked problem that can't be solved because of domestic political reasons. And that's the kind of thing that is 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 possible to imagine that a, a citizens assembly process that's well designed could allow the the political systems running the various parties in Cyprus to come to some kind of more civilized uh, um, new way of living together than the current partition that they have the you know either a formal partition or a reunion or whatever it is they decide uh, that they could reach it in the absence of all this highly charged political grandstanding that that poisons many conflicts there are towns in iraq like kirkuk uh, where it's stuck in time because everyone is divided um uh, is is described as being a, 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 a Shiite, a Sunni, an Arab, a Turkmen, a Kurd. You know, people don't wake up in the morning thinking, oh, I'm feeling so Kurdish today. You know, an ordinary person doesn't feel like that. Of course, they're wondering whether the water's on or the electricity's on, all kinds of civic services are, are working. And I can imagine that uh, a, a random selection-based system could help in a city like Kirkuk, which is... Uh, otherwise constantly tense because of the various factions fighting for power in it. However, I'm not, I'm no fool. I know that you need a certain base of, uh, you need electoral roles, you need, you need security, you need some basic sense of confidence. And it also has to be the case that if someone says something at a citizens assembly, they won't be killed in their house that evening. And I mean, it, there needs to be basic standards of civilized behavior, but that, to me is you know that my experience of citizens assemblies is it is it it is civilization it's wonderful to watch how well people behave and i i i would love to see it uh, experimented with more widely there are conflict uh, prevention organizations for instance the center for humanitarian dialogue has experimented with it in the philippines and worked very well and uh, you can go onto their website and look at bang samoro on the center for humanitarian dialogue and see it being used to try and bring parties close together and uh so but first of all the first place i'd like to see it done is in countries where i live in in western europe and i think that for too long we've been preaching to the rest of the world that our so-called democracies are what you must copy that um that uh, your election systems uh you should you could construct party-based election systems just like us and it'll work work wonders it's not true. And uh, I mean, I worked for a conflict prevention organization and I remember looking one, one year, I was really puzzling about it. This is before I became very fascinated by sortition. And I noticed that one third of the reports we were writing were either about pre-election violence, violence during elections, 
and violence after elections. And I began to think, you know, well, hang on, we're, we keep preaching that elections are what's going to fix your problem, but maybe we're wrong. I, I don't know the answer to that, but we never question the idea that elections are good for other countries. And fascinatingly, this me in the in the in the um, London Review of Books, a uh, very good writer from Africa, Mali, was making the point that actually in my country, one person, one vote makes no sense. And it has not helped us one bit. And Mali is, of course, on its knees after uh, its colonial and post-colonial experience and the current violence. And um, according to her, anyway, elections were, were part of the problem. And I would love a world in which we we had an alternative. You know, maybe elections are good for some things. I don't know, but uh, I definitely know that they're not the only answer, and they've they've certainly messed some places up. This, the way that majority, a simple majority even, can dictate to a large minority, it's just wrong. You have to find a better way to take decisions. Look at look at Britain. 52% of the country voted to leave the European Union, which is clearly a huge step to take against the wills of will of 48%, the passionately held opinions of 48%. What kind of what kind of decision-taking mechanism is that? And the same would happen in Britain between Scotland and England. You had a situation where it was 55-45. But how can you force through an epochal decision with 45% of the population not agreeing with it? It's wrong. So that's a referendum. These are referendums there, which is a kind of direct democracy. But you were talking earlier about the, what what are the kind of um, uses of uh, of citizens' assemblies, and many citizens' assemblies actually recommend referendums. But the key thing in all these is what question are you asking, and are people informed about it? And that's that's uh, I mean, at least with a citizens' assembly, you ha you have a a very high a high level of knowledge when people make their proposals, but when things go to a referendum, there's a great chance that, that the that the story runs away with it. You know, the people people vote for how they're feeling about the government or or something completely different from the question at hand. So uh, one has to handle that kind of thing carefully. And but I'm certain that um, okay, one other thing and I. Sorry, you're going to have to edit this, but it's, it's very late here. Um, <laughs> the the other place which I think that is there, there could be really interesting usage of random selection is in corporate governance. Uh, there, there there is a role for random selection in in organisations, um, and uh, it's fascinating actually to, uh, at citizens assemblies talking to facilitators whose main work is facilitating corporate conferences, and they say it's amazing how people in organizations don't dare to speak because there are hierarchies there are factions you can't you 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 can't say what you think because you're going to be judged and you you may offend people and so forth whereas they said the great joy of working with citizens is that they dare to say exactly what they're thinking and it's not a question of daring they're just saying what they think and that's what gets put into the mix and uh, i think that uh, if if our corporations and you know, not just corporations, any group activity could use a bit more random selection, for instance, the placing of um, 
uh, you know, the assignment of places in university, the the um, uh, is 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 one uh, idea that uh, uh, could transform education. My father has a, an even more radical, want radical. He thinks that um, sports clubs should not choose their teams as as they should if they were genuinely going to. Um, prove their worth as a sports club, they would randomly select from all their players for each match. And then you would know the true value of their training. How about that? <laughs> that gets to the essence of what the objective is. Right? And, and what we mean by who the best club is, is the best club, yes. the one who has the best average player or the best club who has the best ability to win the game. And I actually think his example might cut against his argument. Therefore, I'm going to disregard it entirely. Uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, you mentioned it's important to ask the right questions, and I know we're going over time, uh, so we'll just spend a couple of minutes. But the uh, uh, what kinds of questions? What do we know about the kinds of questions that work better versus the kinds of questions that work worse? They have to be clear, and they it has to uh, be a question that is answerable by that community. It shouldn't be a, a, a question about someone else. It should be their business. And I think that's about it. Another thing that I missed, I was going through just a set of potential criteria. And I, one I said was sort of knowledge, at least expertise of the moment, at least enough information. And any, any sortition system will include a way to give information to that jury, to give information to that assembly, be it the litigants or be it, you know, experts with opposing or, or, or overlapping views. Uh, so knowledge. Second, best behavior as clear as we can be as as separate we as we can be from corruption or or undue influence or intra elite competition uh, another that i didn't say was dialogue consideration right? the ability to grapple with the question and and actually get to it and make sure that, that dialogue that facilitation that consideration that sober second sense is not merely dictated by the loudest marketing campaign or the loudest micro marketing campaign within the four walls of that citizen assembly you've talked and we've talked about representation including rotation another is legitimacy that an argument that right now elections have and it's the argument against is legitimacy well that person was elected that's we i don't know if we got it right but at least we made the decision let's move on to the next thing we can form a government and we can make certain further decisions and you said the best way to build legitimacy for sortition is for people to do it and see it because once they do, it's transformative because they realize, wait a minute, all these people are the best behavior, it kind of works. And wow, that's that works at least as well as I see when people are elected to do it. What Any other extra governmental contexts, setting aside sports clubs, for instance, although for my Portland Trailblazers, random selection might be mildly useful. Hey, you know, I'll take anything we can get. If we're under 500, you know, anything that might keep, you know, Steph Curry off the court, you know, might be good for my team. So the, uh, any extra well, well, governmental one, context that could work? Well, this one is a bit governmental, but it, it has been discussed that, for instance, the, the, the standoff that you have about the U.S. Supreme Court could be partially solved by choosing a group of people, who, all of whom are qualified to be a Supreme Justice, and then justice, and then choosing the person by um, by uh, random selection. And by the way, that is how the funny. So I clerked. I've clerked for the Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals, and that is how uh, 
court of appeals panels are selected, of course, right? Unless they, unless the entire, unless the entire court uh, is uh, is doing. Normally, it's a three judge panel, and that is done, and that is done randomly. And of course, the the randomness, you know, who the judges you get matter. Uh, but the but if you had if you were taking from across Article Three judges and picking twelve or picking thirteen or picking whatever number you wanted, uh, the uh, uh, that it could be um, that it could work. That it could work. I know it's nine currently. Uh, Another very interesting use of random selection has been trialed by the French armed forces. They, since the 1960s, actually, until today, they use a system of random selection from the ranks, a certain number from each rank, to come together to make recommendations about their internal uh, their internal governance and the rates of pay and, and conditions and things. Thanks to the random selection of that group, they feel that they get a much more honest appraisal of the problems within the armed forces than they'd get if they had uh, a hierarchy of people in it or if they were placeholders. So it, it, there's another interesting uh, external use of it. That's helpful. No, I think about my own uh, you know, organizations that I've led, including mistakes that I've made, and, and I feel one of my failures is failing to figure out a random selection mechanism for one of the missed opportunities and related to failures probably, but to then uh, to build a system for random selection for at least answering some questions. We've been at it for a while. You're in Turkey and it is late at night. We've been speaking with Hugh Pope about his father, Maurice Pope's book. The book is The Keys to Democracy. It is available in March. It maybe could have been available in the 1980s, but it wasn't. And now four decades later, it is. Hugh Pope, thank you so much for spending your time. Thank you so much for getting this posthumous work out and published. And thanks so much for being a democracy nerd. Thanks very much. It's been a delight to be with you. Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seeliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. And thank you, democracy.